Good afternoon, church. Let's stand and let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for becoming flesh, for entering into this world and living among us, God. We worship you and we pray that as we get into the gospel of John, that we would catch a glimpse of you, that we would see you and of your glory and know you and love you. Lord, we thank you. We pray this all in your precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated, church. I have this distinct memory uh, from my childhood. I was sleeping over at my friend's house. We were in his backyard. We were sleeping on a trampoline under the beautiful night sky with the stars and the choir of crickets just singing glory to God, right? And I remember sitting there and we were talking and he was telling me about how, um, how frustrated he was with some of his relatives uh, who always felt the need to always want to one-up everything uh, that he you know, told them about. So if he caught a fish this big, the relative caught a fish that big, right? If he went shooting with a bow and arrow and he hit nines and tens, well, he, the, his relative always hit tens every single time, right? And if his dad did something cool, well, his dad did something even cooler and better, right? And it's just this constant, like, one-upping, you know? That's annoying, right? When people feel the need to always one-up everything and everyone all the time. Well... What's interesting is if we look at John, especially chapters 1 and 2, John tries to do the same thing, but not for himself. John tries to show the greatness of Jesus. And what, Jesus, what John is saying is Jesus doesn't just one-up everyone. He doesn't just five up, 50 up. He 1,000 ups everyone and everything. And John's goal, especially in the first two chapters of the Gospel of John, is to show that Jesus is the ultimate one. And so today, we're going to be looking at both John chapter 1 and 2. And I'll give you a quick summary and we'll jump into the main theme of today. First of all, John 1 opens with establishing Christ's identity. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it talks about the baptism of Jesus and the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus, right? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then we see Jesus calling his disciples. So, by the way, if you don't have your Bibles open to John 1 and 2, open them up because we're going to be in John 1 and 2. We're going to, we don't have enough time to read both of the chapters, but we will be referencing a lot of it. So he calls his disciples. Then in John 2, we see Christ's first miracle, which was what? Remember John 2? Anybody shout it out. He's created the wine at the wedding, right? In Cana. So he creates the wine, and the second half of the chapter, he comes to the temple, and he drives out everyone from the temple. He drives, drives out the money changers, the people buying, selling, and even the animals themselves. So that's what's going on in 1 and 2. So back to Jesus being the ultimate one. 
the one who outranks all. As I studied these two chapters, it became so obvious that Jesus was the ultimate one. And you might ask, the ultimate one in what? I think the answer, according to John, is everything. Jesus is the ultimate one in everything. He outranks everyone in everything, in every way. And John tries to make that very clear. Let's read the first three verses of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, that's super clear from the very onset. Jesus is saying, uh, John is saying that everything that exists in this entire world was not made apart from Jesus Christ. All of it was made through him, meaning he ranks above all of it. And then Again, John's repeating that by quoting John the Baptist in verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, he who comes before me, he who comes after me ranks before me. So as we were looking at these three, uh, these two chapters, I noticed three ways, three specific ways. I'm sure there's more. But in ways in which Jesus is ultimate. Let's look at the first one. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And, and John uses three images or three themes to make that very clear. The first one is the Word. And verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. John also identifies Jesus as the true light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Notice, Jesus is giving light to everyone. He's shining. Light is something that reveals something to us, right? You walk into the room, it's dark, you can't see, you, you turn on the light, and all of a sudden it's revealed what's in the room, right? Sometimes we're not surprised. Other times we are surprised what is in the room, right? And then Jesus is contrasted with Moses, Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For those of you that might not know, Moses is considered the greatest prophet in Judaism, right? And a prophet is someone who takes something that's from God and reveals God to the people, right? He brings knowledge to the people, and Jesus is positioned as surpassing passing Moses right here from the very start. And so what John is making clear or trying to make clear is that Jesus is the ultimate self-revelation of God himself. That's why Hebrews 1.1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So he's saying, before and in many ways, God spoke to the prophets, to our fathers by the prophets. But now in the last days, meaning the final version, the ultimate version of God's self-revelation, God has spoken to us by his son. Whereas before, people received a word from God through a prophet. Now, 
God himself became flesh, the second person of the Trinity, and God has revealed himself to us. Whereas before we received light through God's word, through, through prophets, right? There was always a filter, a layer between us and God. Now the light itself has come to us. Before God sent mere men, and now God has sent his own son. Second Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul's describing all the religious Jewish activities, right? He says, these, these things, they are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance the substance belongs to Christ. He's saying Jesus Christ is the one who is casting the shadow into the Old Testament. And all these things, they are just little shadows pointing to the one who is casting the shadow. That's why John 5, 39, Jesus tells the Jews, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify about me. He's saying the Old Testament, it's all about me. It's pointing to me. And that's why John calls Jesus the Word, the Word. Before, people just had writings from God. But now, God himself has entered into our world. God has came and lived among us, and people have seen him face to face, fully not guessing as through a filter. Going back to Colossians 2, all of these things, the, the Sabbaths, the festivals, the dietary restrictions, they are just shadows of Jesus Christ. And we would not even have enough time to go through and tell you all the different shadows that Jesus is casting upon the Old Testament. For example, Let's start with Adam, the first man ever created, right? He is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. He was supposed to be the faithful ruler over all of God's creation, and he failed. He fell, right? That's why Adam is called the first Adam. Jesus is called the last Adam. King David, right? Great ruler, man after God's own heart, and yet he still stumbles, and he's not able to excuse me, he's not able to lead the people of God perfectly. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is able to lead with complete faithfulness. Moses, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, he reveals to us who God is and his commandments. Jesus reveals us so much more. He is the ultimate prophet of God. The Passover lamb. Remember the lamb that was slain in Egypt and, and its blood was put on the doorpost so that the blood can cover and protect both the Israelites and the Egyptians from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. And that is just a shadow of who was going to come and pay for our sin, who was going to protect us. Joseph. His brothers hated him, right? They hated him. They wanted to kill him, but they sold him into slavery. He went through immense suffering, but through his suffering, through his pain and anguish, an entire nation was saved from the famine. 
Jesus Christ was rejected by his own. And through his suffering and through his death, a way of salvation was opened up for millions. All of this, all of the Old Testament is pointing back to our glorious Jesus. And we are meant to see the Old Testament and we are meant to follow the line back to Jesus Christ, the one who is casting the shadow. That's why in John 1, when they found Jesus, says we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth. He is the center of it all. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God, meaning Jesus has made the invisible God, the God we can't touch, see, hear, smell, he has made that God that is beyond our senses, he has made him visible. John 1.18 says no one has ever seen God, meaning he's invisible. But the only God that's talking about Jesus, who is at the Father's side, Jesus has made him known. Jesus has made the Father known to us. And Paul, echoing all that John is saying, and also quoting Genesis 1, just like John is building on Genesis 1, says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who has said, let light shine out of darkness, right, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So God has said, let there be light, and God has shown light into our hearts so we can know God, we can know the glory of God. And how do we do that? In the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who reveals the glory of God to us. He is the true light. Jesus is the ultimate form of God's self-revelation. John 14, verse 8, Philip comes to Jesus and says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. And Jesus responds, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Friends, church, if you want to know who God is, know who Jesus Christ is. He is our full and only real way of connecting back to God. What does this mean for all of us? Well, first of all, maybe you're new to Christianity, you're new to the faith, maybe you're, you're having questions, the first thing I want to tell you is God is not unknowable. God is not some mysterious energy or some experience out there that is out of reach. That's not God. God has revealed himself clearly and plainly. Not that he's answered every question, but he has revealed himself clearly and plainly to all of humanity by sending his son. We no longer need to be left guessing and groping in the dark also. You know what's a very key takeaway from this reality? Is that the ultimate, think about this, church, the ultimate revelation of God is a person. It's a person. It's not a stone tablet. It's not even a book. It's a person. Christianity, church, is not just a set of rules 
and words that we live by. Yes, we live by the words of God. Yes, we feed on the words of God. But Christianity is not just a set of rules and words. We live in relationship with the Son of God himself. That's the essence of Christianity. Let us not be so swept away with just words and rules that we forget that it's about me and my relationship with my creator, with my maker, with the ultimate form of God's self-revelation. You know, there's this cool acronym for the word Bible. I'm sure most of you have heard it, right? What does it stand for? Basic instructions before leaving earth, right? That's cool. It's catchy. I like it. But the Bible does not just give us instructions on how to live, and that's all it is, as if it was just a mere instruction manual. If we read the Bible as simply as just an instruction manual on how to live a good life, and not as a personal love letter from God, from our maker, from our lover, then we have completely missed the entire point of the Bible, church. We've completely missed it. The Old Testament is about Jesus. Are you reading it that way? Are the shadows of the Old Testament helping point back to Jesus Christ for you? Or are we just content with tips and tricks on how to live a good life God's way? Is that all our Bible reading is? Imagine a very wealthy man meets a woman that he falls in love with madly. He proposes to her. She says, yes. And they're about to get married. He says, hey, I have to leave for a year on a business trip. Once we come back, we are getting married. She's poor, so he lets her move into his mansion. He lets her live there with all the maids and the butlers, and he leaves in a hurry because he has to take care of business. And so he starts writing her love letters all the time. And in those letters, he also begins to tell her about the house she's living in. Hey, this is where all the stuff is, right? Here's all the people that are working for you, this person, that person, describing how to, how to manage all of them, right? And all these important things about how to run the house, and imagine one day her friend comes over. He says, look, I noticed that you're always reading his letters. Every time I come over, they're laying on the table. Every time I come over, you're reading them. Why do you read them so often? Imagine if her answer was, oh, it's so practical. It's perfect, customized advice for me on how to run this beautiful house. It's way better than Google. It's way better than all the instruction manuals. It's so practical. That's why I read it every day. That would be utterly heartbreaking if that was her answer. No, we know the real answer. The real answer is because she loves him and he loves her and she wants to think about him. She wants to know him more. She can't wait to see him. She misses him. That's why she reads his letters. Oh, and by the way, they are also very practical. But she loves him, and that's why she reads it. 
How oftentimes, church, do we forget the Jesus who loves us so dearly, the one who stands behind the words of Scripture and speak to, speaks to us through them? How often do we slip into reading the Bible just because it's the right thing to do, because it's good for me, or so they say. Jesus is the ultimate self-revelation of God, and we are to read his word, to know him more, to love him more, first and foremost. That was my longest point. Two, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. One, John shows us that with this image of the Lamb of God. If we can go to the next slide, please. First John 29, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Next slide, one more. Before Jesus Christ, when people would sin in the Old Testament, they would have to bring an animal to the priest, and the priest would slay that animal, and that Animals' death would cover their sins, right? And they were free to go because someone else died instead of them. Well, the problem with this model is that very quickly we run out of animals, right? Because we're constantly sinning. We're constantly failing. You know, animal sacrifices is like, imagine you have a, a leaking pipe in your house, and it's like wiping away the water on the floor as it drips onto the floor. I mean, it, it works. You get rid of the water, so to speak, but you're not fixing the pipe. You're not fixing the leak. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law has but a shadow, notice that word, of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices, that's the animal sacrifices, that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin that the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to. That's why the book of Hebrews says these things, the sacrificial system, is just a shadow of the good things, Jesus Christ, who is to come. It's like almost like a toy car that a father gives to his kid, right? His small kid. He says, hey, play with this for now. But then when the kid gets old enough, the father buys him a car, a real car, not, not a bigger version of the toy car. No, he gives him a real car with which he can actually use to drive around the city. That's the analogy here. The Old Testament sacrifices were never the end goal to begin with, but they were to point to Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And the first shadow that we see in the Old Testament of this is, remember when Adam and Eve sinned, and they made themselves clothing out of fig leaves? And after God confronts them, it says that God took skins from an animal and gave them clothing to cover their shame. 
That animal that had to die, that had to lose its life to cover the shame and the nakedness and the sin of Adam and Eve was the first shadow that was pointing to the sacrifice that the Son of God was going to make 33 A.D. And notice also a very important point. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Not just the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but the Lamb of God. Meaning, it is the Lamb that God has provided. It's the Lamb that God has paid for. It's not the Lamb that me and you bought and went and paid for our sins. No, it is the Lamb of God, meaning it is the salvation and the forgiveness that is both initiated, paid for, and completed by God himself. We are merely the recipients of God's good grace by faith. Praise be to God for paying for our sins, completely covering all of it with his own lamb, for covering the costs out of his own pocket. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sins. The second way that John tries to illustrate this is through his miracle in John 2 with the wine. So, for those of you that may have never heard that miracle, Jesus was invited to a wedding. The wedding was multiple days. They were serving wine there, and they ran out of wine before the party ended. Huge embarrassment, right, to that family, right? It's forever. It's like a blemish onto their family history. Jesus spares them, you know, from being dishonored by there's jars, big jars, clay jars there, that it says they were used for the Jewish rites of purification. So they used to fill these you know, jars up with water, and they would use this water to wash their hands, to be clean, ceremonially clean. And Jesus says, fill these jars up with water, then take some of that water, take it to the MC, the one that's, that's hosting the party, right, and give it to him. They take it, he drinks, and he says, this wine is better than the wine that you started with, right? So Jesus does this miracle, and some people wonder, like, why? What's the purpose? It's so random. None of the other gospels talk about it. It just it doesn't seem to make sense. Well, the purpose of this miracle, at least one of them, is notice it, the jars were for the Jewish ritual of purification. In the Old Testament, the priests were commanded to wash their hands before they made sacrifices, Exodus 30, verse 17. And it was their way of purifying themselves before they came to God. And by the time Jesus, the time of Jesus, all the good Jews were doing that, right? Why not? Like, why not, why not all of us be pure? And so Jesus turns this water that was designated for making oneself physically and ceremonially clean before coming to God, he turns that water into wine. Now, in the Gospels, what does wine represent, church? What does it represent? You can shout it out loud. His blood. Amen. Matthew 26, 28 says, Speaking of the wine, on the Last Supper, he says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Whereas the Jews would purify their bodies with this water, Jesus is saying, I will purify your souls with my blood. 
You will find forgiveness of sins through my blood. Again, church, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and purification of sins. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all three of the other Gospels, they all have passages about the Last Supper, and there Jesus says explicitly, he instates the Lord's Supper. He says, do this in remembrance of me. This bread is my body. This wine is my blood. John doesn't have that. John doesn't capture those words of Jesus at the Last Supper. Unlike the three other Gospels, John does not talk about it, but he still talks about communion just in a different way. He talks about communion as explained by the miracles of Jesus. And we know that John was likely written, was the last gospel that was written. He probably said, okay, we've, we've got it explained three times. I'm going to show you how Jesus instates communion through his miracles. The first one is the wine that he creates at the wedding. No other gospel captures this miracle. And so that's his blood. And then two, when he feeds the 5,000, all gospels capture this miracle, but only the gospel of John captures the teaching that comes after the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. And it's there that Jesus talks about the bread that comes from heaven. Notice what, what he says in John 6, 54. Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh bread, and drinks my blood, wine, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In the gospel of John, communion is demonstrated by the miracles of Jesus rather than his mere explanation of them at the last supper. And lastly, the third point of how Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sins is at the end of John 2, when Jesus goes into Jerusalem and into the temple and he cleanses out the temple, he drives out all the money changers. So the temple was the place where Jews went to go and make sacrifices, right? It's the place they went to to go and find forgiveness of their sins, right? You, you, you're sinning all year, right? And you're just burdened by this guilt and shame of your sin. And then you come to the temple, you bring your offering, and you are cleansed and you're free, right? This is the most clean place on earth. And yet Jesus comes into the temple. He's such an ultimate cleanser that he is cleaning the most cleanest place on earth. And notice, he does not just drive out the people from the temple. He drove out the sacrificial animals as well. He's saying, there's no more need of these. Be gone. We don't need these animals anymore because I will die for all of you. They are no longer necessary. And then he goes on to say, in fact, my body, which will be broken for you, is the temple. It's, it's crazy. The amount of things that are tied into that and how the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, it's just insane, right? But Jesus is saying is, from now on, my body, not this building, will purify your souls. John could not be more clear. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and purification of my sins. How do we relate to this? Church, 
when you feel condemned because of what we have done, what I have done, what you have done, let's remember that it is Jesus who has taken away my sins. Not some innocent little animal that did nothing wrong, but the innocent lamb of God who perfectly understood everything and yet still laid his life down for me. Think of the guilt and the shame that our sin brings to our life. It's horrible, right? It eats us from the inside out. But Scripture tells us, Romans 8.1, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. People might still judge us. My own heart might still condemn me, right? 1 John 5, but God is greater than my heart. God has cleansed me through his innocent lamb. The word of God tells me that my sin has been taken away. And church, if you have believed in Christ, you should not live in guilt and condemnation because Jesus has taken all of it away. And the devil will only try to use that guilt and condemnation to bring you down even more. That's why he's called the accuser of the brothers. Remind him that you're forgiven, not by your own good deeds, but by the Lamb of God who has paid for everything, past, present, and future. He purifies us more than any temple on earth could ever purify us. Or maybe... Maybe you are one of those people, and I think all of us in a sense are. You try to find purification for your sins through your good intentions. Not through Jesus Christ and his sufficient sacrifice, but through, I'm going to do better next time. Church, my good intentions to do better next time, they do not atone for our sins. They cannot atone for our sins, and they will fail us. The only way we are forgiven and atoned for and cleansed and purified and made white as snow is through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus, not my good intentions. And lastly, my fastest point, Jesus, three, is the ultimate presence of God with us. Verse 14 of chapter 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then verse 49, Jesus is called the King of Israel. The King of Israel. From the very beginning when God created earth and Adam, Adam was appointed to have dominion over God's creation. He was a king. He was supposed to have dominion. He was made in the image of God. He was to represent God to the whole world and the king, if we read the Old Testament, used to represent God to the, old, to the people, right? Proverbs 24, 25, these are very linked, right? My son, fear the Lord and the king and do not join with those who do otherwise. And when we read the history of the Old Testament, whenever the kings did good, the people did good. As soon as a bad king came in, everything went downhill, right? But now... We have Jesus Christ. 
who is the new, the last, the final king of Israel, not just the king of Israel, but the king of the universe, the perfect king who will always lead you and me in perfect righteousness. He will never fail. He will never falter in his faithfulness to God. Jesus is the ultimate presence of God with us. And again, let's go one more slide. Jesus is... John also uses this image of the temple. You see, the temple wasn't just the place where people went to have their sins forgiven. It wasn't just like a spiritual cleansing center, which it was. But the temple was also the place of God's most concentrated presence on earth, right? It was the most holiest place on earth where God himself dwelled. And just in two chapters over, John 4.21, we'll be talking about this next Sunday. Jesus telling the Samaritan woman, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, mountain of Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, that's the temple, will you worship the Father. Meaning Jesus is saying the physical temple will no longer be the place of God's special presence. There is no more place. Bright church is not, this building is not a place of God's special presence. That presence lives in us now. And what's interesting is if you look at the the blueprints of the temple at the time of Jesus, there was this place called the holy place. And the priests would be in there, and they prepare the food and the bread and all that. And then deeper in, the deepest part of the temple was this place called the Holies of Holies. And it was separated by a huge curtain, a huge veil. And it was so holy that only one priest would go in one time a year. He would purify himself, he would prepare himself, and then he would go in, and he would go in with a rope tied to his leg, and he'd wear little bells. Why? That way they can hear if he's still alive, because God in his holiness has killed priests that approached him before in an unworthy fashion, and they needed the rope to drag his body out because they could not go in or else they too would be killed. That's how holy, that's how concentrated God's presence was. But we read that as soon as Jesus died, there was an earthquake in Jerusalem. And it says that the veil was supernaturally torn from top to bottom. No longer removing the separation from the holies of holies and the holy place. And really the whole world, right? And interesting, the gospel records that it was written, it was ripped from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, not man ripping it from the bottom to the top, not man reaching to God, but God reaching down to man and making a way and coming to all of us. Only God could rip that veil. And later, we read in the, Old, in the New Testament, we learn that we are now his temple. We are now the body of Christ. Literally, God is now with us. Jesus is the ultimate presence of God with us. That's why he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. As I call the band up, 
I want to emphasize this. Because Jesus is the ultimate presence of God, we can now know that we are never alone. Church, we're never alone. Jesus said, I am with you until the end of the age. What a beautiful promise. He said that as he was leaving. He said, I'm leaving physically, but I'm with you until the end of the age. So church, whatever it is that you are going through, just think about it right now. Whatever challenge, whatever struggle, trial, difficulty, you name it. Whatever it is, Christ is there with you right now. And he's going to be with you until he brings you through this problem and the next and the next and the next until he brings you safely home to be with him for all of eternity. That's what it means for Jesus to be our ultimate presence of God with us. You no longer need to go to a temple to feel close to God. You no longer need to do some ritual to feel close to God. He is always with us. We just need to turn our face to him and notice that he's already there. He's always been there, and we have nothing to fear, nothing to be anxious about because God is with us. We've seen, just to recap, John tries really hard to emphasize the fact that Jesus is ultimate in everything. He's not just some cool or powerful or wealthy person that you want to be around. He is literally God in the flesh. He is everything that the Old Testament has been pointing to, talking about. He is the ultimate revelation of God. Are we focusing on Jesus as the ultimate revelation of God? He's the ultimate purification of sins. Are we seeking purification somewhere outside of him or in us? And he is the ultimate presence of God. Church, friend, is Jesus your ultimate? Is your life, is it revolving around him like the earth around the sun? Your schedule, your time, your family, your money, your job, your hobbies, your weekends, your weekdays, your evenings, your mornings. I'm not talking about being at church 24-7. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm telling you, everything inside of you, is it oriented towards him? Is he the center? Is it all about Jesus? Or is it all about something or someone else? If it's not, confess that to him. It doesn't have to stay this way. You can repent. You can turn to him and he will forgive you and your life will revolve around him. Doesn't mean your life's going to be perfect. Doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. But your life will revolve around him. So trust in him and follow him. Let's stand. Let's pray, church. I'm going to give you a minute of response time. Think about Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Seek Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you. 
We pray that you would be the ultimate one in our life. We pray for those who have not found you yet, who are wandering away from you, that they would come to know who you are. God's ultimate one, God's son, God's lamb. Thank you, Lord. May we love you and know you more and more every day until we see you face to face. We thank you. We worship you. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.